Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. A small number of family, it does remind one of where this actually started, where church started. It started very much like this, families gathering together in a house church type of vibes, celebrating and remembering what Christ has done. What a special weekend. This is definitely the highlight of the Christian calendar, and we are happy that a lot of people are actually spending this with family. This is a time that we want to spend with family. This is a time that we want to gather and we want to recognize how good God has been to us. And so we do pray for all our brothers and sisters that are traveling and that have traveled and on spending time with family and also get the opportunity to anew share and the gospel with one another. And so it's actually a good thing. Rest is a good thing and traveling and being with family is a very good thing so that we can share this with one another. But if you're visiting this morning, if you are the family members that have been dragged, yeah, we're very glad that you were dragged to Red Door this morning. Um, We're a family together worshiping God, living on mission. Uh, We want to be mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. And it's so good that we can gather this morning together and have the kids and have the chaos and the rain and all of this to once again show that what we're doing at Red Door Church is actually not a Sunday event or a Sunday show. This is the pit stop. This is the halfway stop. This is the garage at the side of the highway where you stop and we refuel and we regather and we encourage one another and then we go out into the week, into the world as missionaries. And so this is good once again to remind us that this is not it. But this morning we can confidently say to one another, He is risen. What a great morning it is to celebrate that with one another and to once again discover why this is the central truth to the Christian faith. This morning we get to chat about why Jesus is the hope of the world, specifically why Jesus' resurrection means hope for the world. And so we're going to dive in in a moment. At the end of the service, we're going to have the opportunity for communion Let me share one or two things about communion right now. Communion is a meal that Christians share with one another. We share it as a sign of what Jesus did by his life, death, and resurrection. And it points to the salvific work of his sacrifice on the cross. The bread shows us that he took the punishment that we should have taken upon ourselves. And the blood symbolizes the new covenant that he inaugurated by his sacrifice. And that is symbolized by the juice. And so at the end of the service, we're going to give the opportunity for all of us to enjoy communion together. If you're visiting us and you're not quite sure if you're a Christian yet, I would encourage you, don't use the Lord's Supper yet. Nothing weird's going to happen with you, but it's a special meal for Christians and God. It's good that's happening now and not mid-service. Um, also, um, the Lord's Supper is something very special between Christians and God. And so if you do call yourself a Christian, but you've got some unresolved business with God. This is both uh, an encouragement and a warning. The warning is almost take this seriously. Make sure that as you approach the Lord's Supper that you're at a space where there's reconciliation between you and God. But it's also an invitation. Maybe this is the space where you've drifted away from God, drifted away from the church, drifted away from the church where he invites you to come and sit at the table again. 
And so even during the service, we pray that the Spirit would be working in your heart and working in all of our hearts to once again show that we're all invited to come and sit at the table. Family, if you do have your Bibles, we're going to be in that passage. We're going to show some of the verses on the screen. Jason prayed for us. He did pray for the horrific floods that have been uh, wreaking havoc in Durban. And so our thoughts and prayers are definitely with those families. But let's pray now for God's word so that we won't leave unchanged. Father, we celebrate this morning. We celebrate the only one that had the power, the right, and the authority to defeat death and to cover sin and to reign on high and to be the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Father, we do believe and we acknowledge, Jesus, that one day, at the sound of your name, Jesus, every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow, knowing and recognizing that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Family, we, we, we are living in troublesome times. It, it feels like, for the first time in history, we really have to deal with natural disasters in South Africa as well. It feels like we just can't exit the pandemic, and if it's not a biological pandemic that we're struggling with, it feels like it's a corruption pandemic or economic pandemic that we're struggling with. It feels like the future of the country sometimes looks bleak, or at least there's many challenges on the horizon, politically, economically, socially, and even on a natural side as well. And so as you think about all these things, as you think about the future of South Africa, what would you say is your natural inclination, your natural outlook on life? Would you describe yourself as a pessimist or an optimist? And which one do you think is better? I'm, I'm sure if you're a pessimist, you would reckon that's it. Or maybe the general consensus is, I would love to be an optimist, but I am a pessimist, and unfortunately, that's the position I hold to. Well, it's interesting. I think both of them have pros and cons for and against them. I think being a pessimist is not all bad. One of the good things of being a pessimist is at least you're realistic about the challenges you're facing. At least you're recognizing that there are things that I've got to deal with. You don't sweep it under the rug or you don't just live in a daydream and saying everything is going to be all right. You recognize the problems. Obviously, the consequence or the con of being a pessimist is you, oftentimes your viewpoint is, well, there's challenges and there's no way that we would be able to overcome them. And you normally a little bit more on the downer side of life and it's difficult to be positive about your surroundings. Being an optimist, it's quite clear what the pros are of being an optimist. You normally, you've got a positive outlook on life. Um, you're, uh, there's not always maybe a realist, but you generally a nicer person to be around in conversations, and you, it's fun being and hearing your outlook in life. But there is also a con to being an optimist. I think one of the problems of being just an optimist is that you don't recognize the real problems that we're facing. If we just say that everything is going to be all right with actually giving good, hard plans or facts or recognizing some of the challenges, you're actually not being optimistic. You're being idealistic. And so pessimists would describe themselves as realists and optimists would probably describe themselves as idealists. And so where should we fall? 
as Christians, do we ignore our problems or are we just so despondent about our problems that we can't engage them? And this is where we talk about the story of the gospel. The gospel refers to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the word gospel that we use for that. It means good news because this is a good news story, and we'll share a little bit about that in a moment. But we believe that the gospel always gives a third way for the Christian. It's not right or left. The gospel speaks into these situations, and it gives us almost the middle way to walk on. And for Jesus, he calls this hope. He says that Christians are people that should be marked by hope. Not so optimistic that we're, not, that we're unable to realistically address and identify the problems in our lives, but not so pessimistic that we think that those circumstances have the last say. We, you see, friends, what Christians believe is we do believe that even though the problems that we are facing are very real and are very troublesome, we do believe that those situations or circumstances don't have the last say and what will happen. We believe that there's an outside force that speaks into these situations. And so Christians at least should have the ability to be very realistic about what we're facing and still be people characterized by hope. And at the center of what hope means is that it's, or at the center of hope for the Christian faith, of course we said as the gospel, but at the center of the gospel, the Christian hope lies in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is only because of the resurrection of Jesus that the Christian can have hope. And this is very important. Many of us, uh, historians would agree, right across the board, Christian or non-Christian, that the historical figure of Jesus existed. Everyone would agree of that. Most everyone would agree that this Jesus was crucified and that he died. Everyone would agree with that. And so everyone could see that Jesus was this good person, he gave this good teaching, and he laid down his life for his people. And so we would all be able to so far in the story nod along and say, yes, I can understand why the Christians believe that Jesus died for their sins. He laid down their life for him. Where it becomes a little bit muddy for historians is in the resurrection of Christ. Not only did Jesus die for people's sins, but he was also resurrected. And it's here where it becomes problematic for some people. I actually Googled this a little bit, especially in the UK, what Christians believe. 50% of Christians in the UK believe in the death of Jesus, but not in the physical resurrection of Christ. It feels like this is an archaic view of viewing Christians. It's like we are now post-modern human beings. Surely we don't believe in that still, that someone had to be physically resurrected. Why is it necessary that Christians hold to this teaching? Why can't we just say Jesus was spiritually resurrected? At least that's what most people believe. That his resurrection actually exists in the teaching that people take forward. Love your neighbor, do unto others as you want to do unto yourself. That teaching lives forth through Jesus' disciples. Why are Christians so direct in wanting to force the issue that he was physically resurrected? resurrected. Even a lot of Christians struggle with this and challenge one another to say we shouldn't hold as fast to this teaching. It would be a lot easier to evangelize non-Christians. If we simply omit the hocus-pocus re uh, resurrection, a lot of people would be, 
or a lot of people would be able to stomach this message a lot easier. We would invite a lot of skeptics closer to the table if we simply say, believe in Jesus, but believe what you want about his resurrection. Why do we say that the resurrection is central to the Christian hope? The good thing this morning is that we're not the first ones to wrestle with this. Even though we think we're very modern and that we're the only ones with these questions, this question has been central to humanity since Jesus' death. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he addresses this exact issue and explains to them the significance thereof. As a family, read with me from verse 12. Paul says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? This is the issue that the church in Corinth was struggling as well. They're saying, we believe in this, we believe in God, we do believe that God exists and Christ really did exist. But let's not talk about this whole resurrection of the dead. It's not very forward-thinking. It's not very modern. It's not very technologically advanced to still believe this. And Paul says in verse 13, But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, have died or have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we Christians of all people are most to be pitied. And so here's the problem that we face in this world right now. I think we would all agree that there's some brokenness present in this world. We would all agree that there's a great evil in this world. It feels like things are just working against us. If you're an engineer, you would very much know rust and things degrading and oxidizing and how that works against you. Erosion, uh, natural disasters, things are almost always tends to move towards chaos. Everything wants to break down and move away. But it's not just true of our physical environment around us. We see this even in people. We see this in the war in Ukraine. Somehow people are prone to violence and great evil that exists in people's hearts. We've seen this in great dictators and murderers and thieves. And we see this a lot in South Africa as well as we constantly go under people's greed and people just being evil and exploiting the vulnerable and the poor. And so most of us would agree that there is evil in this world. Christians would identify this evil as being sin. And so collectively, even Christians and non-Christians, we can call out to God and we can ask God, God, won't you rid this world of sin? Won't you cleanse us and take this away from us? And this is the very indictment that people have against God, that non-Christians have against God. If Christians say, well, God is good, he's powerful and he's sovereign, why then does he allow all of this to happen? Why doesn't he just take away the evil out of the world? If sure it's by people's rebellion that this entered, but why doesn't God do anything about it if he is all-powerful? 
And even by that question, we reveal how we think about ourselves and the position that we put ourselves in. You see, the family, the problem is, is not that evil exists out there and that brokenness is in the world. The problem that we face is that evil is in our very hearts, is that this poison of evil has gone into every fiber of every person's being. Romans 3 talks about that everyone has sinned and everyone has turned away from God. Not one person is righteous. No, not one. And so the problem is, if God were to get rid of evil, he would need to get rid of us. If God needed to heal this world, he needs to take away the core of the problem, which is us. See, family, the sin can be described and can be identified not just as not following God's will, and not doing what God prescribed, but it's actually not giving God the glory that is due. That's what sin is. Sin is not recognizing God's glory and his wisdom and his might. Sin is not giving the praise that God is due. And so the moment we turn that praise and that glory somewhere else, as we did in our forefathers in Adam and Eve, we rebelled against the good rule of God and sin entered into this world. This great evil entered into this world and into our hearts where we believe that we're better off without God. And God being supreme and righteous, good, he cannot not be God, and so he's got to punish, and he's got to remove evil from his sight. And so the problem is twofold. One, it's the fact that we've rebelled against God, not recognizing his glory, and so we deserve to be punished. That's true. But the other problem is that as a result of this rebellion, we are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to our own desires. We think we have free will, but you can only, <laughs> we're always doing only what we want to do. You almost can't go against your own desires. And so we've got this issue between us and God, but we've also got this issue in our own hearts that we can't turn away from sin. We're almost like old addicts turning back to the same sinful patterns. Family, this is where we see why the gospel is called the good news, why the whole story of Easter is such good news, because the love of God and of Jesus was exactly exemplified here. Before we earned it, before we deserved it, Christ came and died for sinners. And not only that, but he was raised from the dead. And this is where the crux of the situation lies. Jesus' death paid the penalty for our punishment. A lot of us know that part of the story. Jesus came to die for our sins. And so that was accomplished on the cross. His death flowed and his body was broken. That was almost part one was accomplished. But the other problem was that the sin still reigned. And the effects of sin were still very much present in this world. So even though the debt was paid the problem wasn't addressed. The problem of our hearts and us being enslaved to sin. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then he really wasn't the son of God. And then in the first place, he really wasn't able to pay for our sins. He wasn't then also able to defeat death and the real problem that we have to defeat sin. And if this is true, 
That's why Paul says, then we as Christians are to be pitied above all people in this world. Why? Well, we're not getting the best of any world at this stage. Christians are called to live this sacrificial love, to love their neighbor, or a sacrificial life to love their neighbor. But if there's no hope in Jesus, if there's no eternal life, if there's no freedom from sin, then we're not even enjoying the luxuries of this earth and not even enjoying the luxuries of sin. We're looking and walking after Christ without any payout. What a sorry bunch of people we would be. Yes, there's benefit in living the Christian lifestyle, but think about it this way in terms of illustration. It came out this week, and I won't say which university. Luckily, the students aren't here this week because they would panic. Um, it came out this week that there's a university that it seems like for the past 20 years, their degrees aren't being accredited anymore. That there was some or other mistake that most of the bachelor's degrees doesn't count anymore. I hope that you're getting a slight panic attack and you're like, I've got to go check if that's mine or not. Um, and there's a reason why you're getting or feeling anxious about that, and that's because no one would tell you, well, at least you got the experience to go to uni, and at least you got the classes, and at least you got the knowledge. That's all you needed. Whereas we very much realize that the reason why you studied, yes, was to acquire knowledge, and the reason why you paid all that money to go to university was so that you could get the degree, and with that piece of paper, it would actually open up a lot of doors for you vocationally. So when that's taken away, it almost falls flat. And family, that's the same with the resurrection of Christ. Yes, there's great teaching, and yes, there's great value in following the teaching and the principles of Christ and Christianity, but without the resurrection, without the bondage of sin being broken by Jesus' resurrection, we are still hopeless and hopelessly lost. Verse 20. But in fact, <laughs> this is great. Paul changes direction. He comes around the corner. That would have been the problem. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Here's the great thing. We see that there's a progression happening right here. What happened with Jesus' resurrection, we see that he's the first fruits. Almost in Adam, when Adam sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, we see the the disease of death and sin spread to all humanity. We were infected by this disease. Jesus initially created all creation. 
and now it became infected. But by his death and resurrection, he's recreating. He's giving this new creation, a spiritual creation, so that those who are now believe in him take part in this new creation and we won't taste the second death. And so as Jesus overcame death, He not yet destroyed it, he overcame death by his resurrection. We look forward to the day when he's going to come back and defeat the final enemy, death itself. But this we know as we reflect on what today means is that the power of death and that the power of sin that reigns supreme before this has now been broken. And what this means for the Christian is hope. And so I'm going to discuss three quick things and then we're going to have communion. This gives us hope for the world, hope for the church, and hope for the individual, hope for me. And so as we look at the world, we're definitely despondent. And it feels like things are just heading in one direction and that everything is out of control. But we do see that there's a specific order in which Christ is bringing salvation. And so Christian, rather than just being optimistic or just being pessimistic, I want you to see the hope within the order. Christ will return and he will defeat every authority and every rule and he will put everything in subjection under his feet. Some of that will happen as Christians spread the kingdom of God. But this war is going to rage until the end and so it will get worse before it gets better. And so when we think about climate change, when we think about global hunger and pandemics, we don't want to stand back and say we don't want to be part of this because everything is going backwards in any case. Rather, because we know how this story ends, the Christian isn't pessimistic or optimistic. We say, I have hope. Not in the situation, but in the resurrection of Christ. I am willing and I'm able to address or walk into the situation because I know that one day he will come back and he will put everything in subjection under his feet. There's something called, I think, what's the right word? It's mercy fatigue or serving fatigue that so many people get when they have no hope. When you want to go into a situation that's so overwhelmingly negative and you try and change the situation, but the longer you're in that situation, you see the hopelessness and the futility and they give up. They become hopeless. And so Christians stay in the fight. Christians are willing and able to continue to serve and continue to love even when all hope seems lost because our hope is not in the circumstances itself but rather in the reality that is created by Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we look forward to that day that Christ will return. And so it doesn't make us apathetic. Rather, it makes us urgent in the way that we reach the world. And family, note this. This is not just in serving and speaking into broken circumstances. Rather, we are now those messengers of hope going into the world. Thinking about South Africa, we had many conversations, me and friends this week, about immigration and not immigrating, about work, about challenges. And the thing what this should do in the Christian is not say everything is going to be all right in South Africa, that we don't have any challenges. No, we're not that optimistic. Rather, we are caught in that tension where we stay in these conversations and we are able to listen and give feedback. And yet, in those conversations, we'll say, but I still have hope. 
Not that things will necessarily go better in the country, but that Christ will still reign and that he will still use me wherever I am. So family, let's not shy away from the difficult circumstances or let's not sweep it under the rug. Christians are actually the only people that should be able to feel the full brunt of how bad things really are. Because we know that it can't get better or worse than Saturday when Jesus was still dead. That's the lowest point in humanity. Christ is dead, there's no hope. But because he has risen, we can actually talk about the deepest and darkest of times and be honest with one another. It's within these spaces that we can have good and honest conversations about inequality, about race, about restitution. You see, family, if, if we don't have hope, then my fear drives me to be angry and not to want to have these conversations or actually speak about it. But because we have hope, I can freely chat about these things, even though we might differ, even though we might be on different roads that we're walking, but at least as family, we can chat about these things and we can invite other people into these conversations. Jesus is the hope for the world. But not only that, he is also the hope for the church. So many places and so many people, we've heard stories where the church is failing. We see the failures of church leaders. We see church structures hurting and failing people everywhere in South Africa and abroad. And we've got to ask ourselves, what is the way forward? One of the things that we've got to remember that part of the resurrection of Christ was not just for individuals, but it was for his pride, the church. And so even though we see so many different people failing in so many different ways, and maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've been hurt by a church. You've been hurt by either a church structure, a person in power, or maybe even just another person within church. And you've lost your confidence in the credibility of what we know as church. Know this, that ultimately church can't be controlled by people that Christ redeemed his bride by his death and resurrection, and Jesus will keep his bride until he returns. And so even though we see many failings and we want to be real, okay, finally it's down. <laughs> we, we, here's what hope does. When we see failings within the church, we don't say get over it or just forget about it. We need to address it, and we need to call sin where sin is. However, because we have hope, we're not pessimistic in saying, it's never going to work, why do we even try this? But we actually speak hope and grace into a situation and say, okay, how can we restore, how can we reconcile, how can we call those to account? I've seen many examples this week and the last couple of months where churches, especially in abusive cases, want to say, get over it. Hope makes us call people to account. Hope makes church congregants ask accountability of their leaders. And so if you're here today, part of what hope should do for you this morning is call your leaders to account, is call me to account, is ask accountability of me and demand that I stay plugged into the gospel. 
wanting me to be at that space where at least we are not building the kingdom of Red Door, but building the kingdom of God. Finally, family, what this means for us this morning, the resurrection of Christ is hope for me, hope for the individual. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what your circumstances are, but one thing I do know is the enslaving nature of sin, how it keeps drawing us back and how it makes us despondent, thinking that we're unable to really ever change. I want to read a passage from Hebrews 10, 1 to 4, and 12 to 14. It says, But since the law, the Old Testament law, was a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, they are a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for by the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. No adherence of the law or sacrifices was ever able to make the people of God perfect and right in front of God. And you might be at that stage where you still refer to that, where you still think that the right disciplines or doing the right things or giving the right sacrifice to God will make you right with God. Maybe you've been in church and you've heard the story of Jesus, but you still think that Jesus is up there with God and what he needs from me is to bring another sacrifice. Where Jesus is, he is at the throne room of God, but he has prepared a table for you to come and sit. The invitation is, come and eat with me. Come and trust in the sacrifice that I have made. Family, the hope for us this morning is that no sin is greater than God's grace. And so we are invited this morning, both in personal confession and conviction, to once again rely on this for sanctification. Left to our own devices this morning, we would be without hope. Even if we were to hope in our own power, or in our own ability to cling to hope, we would be hopeless. Many times in this week, in this year, <laughs> in the last couple of years, the temptation is continually in front of me to give into hopelessness. The hope that I have is not that I would be able to cling to hope, but because I'm in Christ, hope clings to me. And so family, I do not, I'm not, optimistic or pessimistic even about my own abilities because left to my own devices I will fail but Christ has risen he's broken the power of sin and death and he sits at the right hand of God interceding for all of us let's pray Father we are so thankful this morning for what you have done Jesus we want to give you all praise and glory. We want to sit 
and live and be people of hope, we have to confess this morning that more often than not we give in to hopelessness. We look at the waves and the wind and we start to sink. Thinking that those things are greater than you. Thinking that you aren't really good. Father, how can that be? Jesus, when we look at the cross, when we look at the empty tomb. How can that be when we see the most despicable act in human history done and yet you have overcome it? In spite of who we are and in spite of what we've done. We pray that even now as we enjoy the Lord's Supper that we would be reminded, comforted, encouraged. But more than that, even amongst our tears that we would have hope and be people of hope. That wherever we go, different church, different province, different city, different country. Wherever you send us, Lord, wherever we might find ourselves, that our hope would not be in my bank account, that my hope would not be in my relationships, that my hope would not be externally situated, that our hope would be in what was accomplished through Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.